This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, you know, a few weeks ago we were talking and I mentioned physical therapy, and I thought to myself afterwards, I can't believe I share all this personal information on the podcast. <laughs> That's not something that you would ever do, is it? <laughs> oh, but I'm just about to. <laughs> I got my own physical therapy story to tell. So um, I don't really talk about this stuff much. Um, I I posted about it recently in the Facebook group and also on Patreon, but I I live with chronic pain, like really intense chronic pain. And it's taken years to try and figure out what's going on. And um, I finally found a doctor that kind of is able to sort through things. And and there's, there's just so much wrong on, it shows up on the MRIs and everything, but none of that stuff is really pointed to the root cause of this pain. And, but it was enough this time around that I, you know, I ended up in physical therapy and through the process of physical therapy of unlocking some of the muscles and stuff, I was able to figure out what, what I believe are the core issues and took that back to my physical therapist. And she's like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. And there's just, there's muscles that are really hard to get to, but have been strained for like 30 years because I have one hip that's higher than the other. And it's been that way apparently since I was quite young and it's put all this. So I have a leg that's shorter than the other. And so, um, all this tension and pressure is ending up like right where my hip bone meets the the femur and um the the in the socket and everything and it's so it these muscles having been locked up for 30 years or more it's quite intense trying to get them to relax to stretch to balance things out even to the point where we can try and rotate that hip back and even it out and basically get both of my legs to be the same length so fundamentally the issue is I walk with a hitch and uh, limp to the side and it has put pressure on my spine all the way up. And, you know, I've got my neck is all messed up and my shoulders because everything is crooked. It's like a functional version of having a shorter leg, a functional version of having scoliosis, even though I don't have those things. So because of this, like the pain that I live with and I've been living with for so long is, I mean, it comes and goes, it's not always horrible, but there's never a time that I'm not in pain. There's no position I can be in that I'm not in pain. I'm in pain all the time. And I just have learned to deal with it, to block it out. And I, you know, I have prescription for painkillers, non-narcotic, but I, I don't want to take them because, well, I'll take them if I have to, but I try to avoid it because I've already gotten ulcers from them. And also they just mask the symptoms. Like I, and I'm afraid that if I if I don't feel it, then maybe I will do something that will ultimately end up making it worse because that's what's happened over the years. Is I'll, I'll find a way to relieve one aspect of the pain, and then in the end, it just may, ends up making something else worse. So anyway, I I was I'm just so excited about being able to to get this 
like we might actually have a solution. I actually have hope for a pain reduced life, which is amazing. I don't have to cut off my leg, which is what I feel like doing a lot of times. Just cut it off at the hip, get rid of it, get rid of the pain. Um, and so anyway, this one particular session that happened uh, last week, I I have, I guess my pain signals are kind of broken. I have a high pain tolerance, obviously, if I'm living with this for so long. And I I have this tendency to just push through. And I know I'm limited on how many sessions I can have, but I'm like, just do whatever. Like, I don't care about the pain, just push through it. And I spoke too soon because <laughs> that particular day I actually tapped out. I'm sitting there hitting the thing like, okay, okay, I tap out. I've, I, I don't know. I've never tapped out from pain before. I just always just slug on through it. And it was that bad. But I didn't recognize how bad it was until after I walked out because I was feeling a little like woozy, a little dizzy. And getting home, I... I just like, I didn't have the same kind of coordination. Like uh, the drive, I was driving and like, I veered over the line a couple of times, but not from lack of care, just from like a disconnect between brain and, and hands or whatever. And, and I get home and I'm like, this is, it was early in the morning. And so I was like, okay, this is a, a writing day for me. And so I like, all right, how do I downshift my mind? You know, get out of one mode, get into writing mode. Let me go you know, read up on some of the stuff I've been researching, get myself back in that frame of mind. And, and, I, and I couldn't, like, I, I couldn't get my brain to process and focus on what I'm seeing in a way that I could connect with it. And like all the parts were disconnected and it, it quite familiar to how it was when I had the big brain break, but there was no, I could, why is this happening right now? And then I was like, okay, well, if I, if I can't do this, well, let me at least like, let me all just scroll my news feed because that helps my brain decompress and I can, I can work after that, but I couldn't do that either. Like I was, I was scrolling, but I couldn't make the words make sense in a way that I could connect with them. It was just noise. It's like, all right, that's not working. Let me try um, like playing some mindless games, like, you know, little puzzle games or, you know, matching games or whatever. Nope couldn't do that. And these are things that I can do for hours procrastinating on normal day, you know, like, oh, where'd that two hours go by? But no, I, I, I couldn't do it. And then I start dozing off. And anyone who knows me knows that like when it comes to nighttime, I fall asleep, like, bam, I'm out. And then when I'm up, I'm up. I don't take naps. I just don't. But I'm like falling asleep all through the day. I feel like I've been drugged. And I just don't understand, like, what's going on? And finally, at about 4 o'clock, 4.35, I start pulling out of it. And I can actually start formulating thoughts. And I'm not just sitting there blanking out and drifting off and staring at the ceiling. And I start Googling. Pain? (laughs) Brain fog? What the? (laughs) And yeah, apparently this is a thing. And... Like it has to do with your body's adrenal response, you know, basically long story short, if I was reading this information correctly, I just experienced an adrenal dump. (laughs) Like that's what I was, was an adrenal dump. And, and it it had, that's the brain fog that comes with it. And I was like, I don't know if this is connected somehow to what happened to the brain break before. And maybe I'm just hypersensitive to it in a way now that 
I hadn't been previously in my life. I don't know. All I know is like, it was so extreme, just one minute to the next and then faded away that it was impossible to ignore and go, what just happened to me? So now I know, and now I know to be more careful (laughs) during physical therapy, but it was just a really interesting experience. And you'd think, you know, this far along in my life, this would just be something I knew about, but no, it was entirely new to me. And now you know about it too. (laughs) That's the whole point. That's it. That's all I got. All right. So I I have two observations. One is that I was sort of feeling sorry for you for this level of pain that you have to deal with. But then you, you said something that topped that. And now I really feel sorry for you knowing that you don't take naps. Oh, (laughs) well, you know, there is a link between napping and Alzheimer's. Nobody knows which one is which, if it's causing it, if it's just correlated, whatever, but you know what? I can at least take that off the table. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, naps are wonderful. And I will say that when I did my physical therapy and this is, this is the way you and I are different when it comes to pain. They they will put this machine on me and and say, let us know when it hurts. And I inevit- if I see them turning the dial, I'll say, that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> really, that hurts? Well, no, not really, but I just wanted to be sure that you were going to stop it if I said it hurt. I, and I I've... just ease up to the point where there's slight discomfort, and then I feel like that's insufferable pain. Well, the... The, the therapist, she's really good. She's not pushing me or anything, but she's like, oh, I want to be careful. I don't want to hurt you. And I look at her and said, you can't. There's nothing <laughs> you can do to me. Oh, so you laid that down the That is worse. I did. But I was correct the first several sessions. I just, once I brought this new information to her and she actually found these spots, plural, that was causing these specific, just agonizing pains, plural. Um, it was game over. I, I was just like about passing out at that point. I was just like, okay, okay, tap, 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 tap. Um, so now I know you can hurt me. But until that point, I didn't think it was possible. So, yeah. And if you would just gone home and taken a nap, it would have all gone away. Well, yeah. It's a, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is not medical advice from a licensed medical practitioner. It's just my opinion. Naps are good. (laughs) Right. Yes, I believe you. All right. So we actually do have something to talk about other than physical therapy and napping. And that is prologues. Yes. So this is a primer on prologues. And it was sent into the show by author C.A. Newsom, who writes the Leah Anderson Dog Park Mysteries. Did I say it right? Is it Leah or Laia? Leah. I think it's Leah. Leah. Okay. So the Leah Anderson Dog Park Mysteries, which are cozy mysteries with a bite. And if the name C.A. Newsom sounds familiar to you, that's because it is. Because she has graciously allowed us to use her draft material several times in the past for tutorials. And she's also been sort of a contributor at large to this show in that uh, she's sent in some of her own hacks and techniques and tricks that we have shared on the show. And so in this instance, she has sent us her thoughts on the do's and don'ts of prologues. So I'm going to mostly just read this straight through. And then if we have time, we'll discuss it and just, yeah, use it as a launching point for discussion. 
So here we go. These are Carol's words, not mine. C.A. Newsom. Every book is a journey of discovery, a dance of the seven veils. The hardest task of the writer is not deciding what happens, it's deciding what to reveal and when to reveal it to achieve the right tension to pull people along and give the most satisfying experience. Then we come to prologue. Right now, publishers supposedly hate them. Agents I met at Killer Nashville sneered at them as a sign of inept writing. No matter what the official line is, they still put out books with prologues. Prologues create context that hopefully enriches the reader's experience. I often enjoy them. I always use them. As with all styles of writing, they can be done well or poorly. They fit some places and not others. Here are the don'ts. One, don't info dump. A prologue is not a place to show off your world building or lengthy character histories. Too often, this is tedious and you lose your reader before you get to the story. This kind of prologue occurs most often in sci-fi or fantasy stories. It's great you did the work, but better to save those details for when they become relevant, relevant in your story. Two, don't preview a climactic event that occurs later in the book. This suggests to me the spoiler is meant to keep me engaged through a long slog. These are usually set up as a cliffhanger with the resolution of the scene to be revealed when you finally arrive at that point. But the wait between the cliffhanger and the reveal is too long, and knowing the nature of this important event kills much of the oomph when you finally get there. This is absolutely my least favorite kind of prologue. Fix your story problem instead. Here are the do's. If there is something everyone in your world knows, but shoehorning it into the narrative will not be logical or will feel unnatural or will involve contriving a scene with no other purpose to unpack it, or the narrative around this event is better served revealed later, a very brief announcement style prologue can get your story up and running. The inciting incident in my fifth book, Muddy Mouth, is the disappearance of an author at a convention. I actually wrote out the event as an entire chapter, but realized the details were indulgent and incidental and bogged down by my bogged down my beginning by investing readers into the wrong things. I swapped that chapter out for a short prologue, a one-paragraph news article about the disappearance. I inserted details later as they had served the story. This maintained more mystery and more tension around the disappearance. Two. My favorite prologues are those which feature an inciting incident that occurs prior to the main character's engagement, fully fleshed and immersive. In mysteries, this is usually the murder, the event that motivated the murder, or the discovery of a body by someone other than your cast of characters before your story begins. In a romance, it is usually a scene that explains how the main character came to be in their current situation while setting up emotional issues that will play out in the new relationship. Getting fired and having to relocate, breakup of a prior relationship, inheriting a house across the country, and in the case of a second chance romance, a significant scene from the prior history of the couple. Three, give your readers the money shot. 
I was seriously annoyed recently when a prologue invested several pages into the thoughts and actions of a person that led them to discovering multiple bodies. When we finally get to that spot that we knew from the first paragraph would be a murder scene, she stops at the door and gasps, end of prologue, and we never see what she sees, which is what we have been aching to see for far too many pages. This character never appears again, and her thoughts and feelings add limited value to the plot. Later, we hear a brief detective report about what she found in dry, anticlimactic fashion. Note, in some instances, this setup might work if there is an insanely outrageous reveal later on. But in this case, we learn quickly that what she saw and the telling of it is highly unsatisfying. Four, if there is a lot of history before the action starts, and it includes scenes the reader would enjoy experiencing, Consider either flashbacks or an alternate timeline running concurrent with your story instead of a prologue. Shot in the Bark and Drool Baby use journal entry flashbacks. Swamp Monster has multiple timelines. The inciting incident, the murder, which is the prologue, the main story arc, and historical events in the distant past that set up the murder. The two timelines are layered so that dips into the past enrich what is happening in the present. Three, give it the space it needs and no more. The Money Mouth prologue is one paragraph. Conversely, the prologue on To Maximum Security was a full-length short story. In this case, the hows and whys and emotions in this scene invested the reader emotionally in later events and was therefore a good investment of the reader's attention. Four, use your prologue to create mystery. Leave questions burning to be answered. Show enough to satisfy while not telegraphing important reveals. Five, if you don't need it, don't write one. Six, prologues are a great, great way to give your reader context while leaving your characters in the dark. Seven, a prologue featuring your main character or other main actor is legit when the event portrayed occurs well before the story starts and has a significant impact on later events. Eight, you can have multiple prologues for one story if you have inciting incidents for multiple storylines or character arcs that meet the criteria for a prologue and merit a scene of their own. And that is the end of Carol's material. And the reason why I read it straight through without commentary is because when I first read it, when she sent it to me, I was like, this is amazing. It's wonderful. It's brilliant. I don't have anything contrary to say about any of these points. And in some of them, I'm like, oh my God, that's so awesome. And so this is all very, very, very good advice. My concept of prologues is not nearly as well thought out as what we've just read here. Um, I know that when I started writing, the I had read very few books, novels up to that point. And most of the ones that I had read, and certainly the ones that had were behind the decision to start writing, were espionage thrillers by Robert Ludlum. And every single one of his books had prologues. And since I didn't know anything. I just assumed that a novel required a prologue. (laughs) And so that's what I did with my story. But I didn't have any of this information that 
has been so thoughtfully laid out here. I didn't understand the purpose of prologues. I just sort of lucked into writing what my agent later told me was the best prologue that she had ever written. And in retrospect, as I think about that, that prologue for the informationist hits every single one of these points that C.A. Newsom just laid out for us here. The, The prologue does not involve any of the main characters that we see later on the story. It's a scene that takes place four years before the main story kicks in. It's critical to understanding the setting and the information. It's, it is the inciting incident, essentially, of what prompts this entire story. And it allows us to see an event that we will never be able to see through another character's eyes because the character's eyes, who we see it through in that moment, becomes unable gets traumatized and is unable to really communicate. He's kind of catatonic. And so we're never going to have it discussed. And it's only after we finally meet that character that we begin to understand, oh, this was his experience of when this whole thing went down. But what it does is it sets the scene for the danger and the paranoia and the environment that is about to come. And by chance, like I didn't know what I was doing at the time. And so when I think about prologues now, I I just want to say I agree with everything that was said here. If you're looking for a shortcut, which of like, should this be a prologue or should it not? Um, And it's if if you're struggling to like uh, process this information, see how it applies to you or not. A very simple shortcut way of looking at it, perhaps, is does this material in the scene you're writing deal with information that sits outside the story, but it's needed to give the story context or help the story make sense? Then yeah, a prologue might work, but. If this material is part of the actual story that's going on right now, and you're just sort of creating a setup for it, then just call it chapter one. In fact, any prologue can be called chapter one. Like if you're averse to using the word prologue because you're afraid that it's going to mark you as being out of date, or maybe it will cause an editor to turn up an agent or an editor to turn up their nose and think you don't know what you're doing then call it chapter one. And if you get that story agented and you get an editor and you've sold it, then at that time you can say to your editor, hey, I'd really rather have this be as a prologue. Do you see have any objection to that? And unless they've got a really solid reason why not, you can put your prologue back in. But otherwise, chapter one is fine too. But what the prologue does is it's setting it, it's setting it apart. It's saying, hey, This is different from the rest of the story. Here's something you need to know. It's not going to come into play anywhere down the line, but it's still important to know. And that's basically what a prologue is doing, is is giving you outside information from the story, whether it's through a setup or something that you can't see elsewhere. And I won't even attempt to try and match what C.A. Newsom has sent us because it is just top to bottom, perfect, brilliant advice. And that's why I'm calling it a primer on prologues, because if you follow that advice, then 
then then you're going to get it right. And that's all I got on that. There's a lot of really good information in there, as as you said. Uh, my favorite is, and I don't remember which number this one this was, but is if you don't need it, don't write it. Right. Um, there are so you you mentioned this with with your first book. You felt like books needed a prologue, or books had prologues, like you couldn't have a book without a prologue, kind of thing. Yeah, and like I it was see, a, is a required element of of yes, writing a novel and, and epilogues too. I see. Yes, I see a a few authors who feel like they need to bookend every book with a prologue and an epilogue. And I can say, and this is a single data point here, as, as you like to say, Taylor, a single data point, but I read a lot. And every time I see a prologue, I inwardly groan. It's like, I don't want to read the prologue. I want to start with chapter one. I, I typically will read the prologue, but I'll skim through it. And then assume that I'm going to have to go back and read it again at some point because something I'll need that information for something to make sense. But it, it, that's just a pure uh, reading experience thing for me. I find prologues to be off-putting, somewhat off-putting, even, that's if, probably, even if there's a need oh, for them. Go that's ahead. probably because of how so many authors do them wrong. And so yes. they've developed yes. a, a sort of a, a bad name for themselves, so to speak. Uh, so I guess if we wanted to tack on a number to this list of do's, I would say if you're going to write a prologue, make sure that those opening sentences yank that reader in so hard they can't not read it. Or do it like as a, a single paragraph or though you can see right there on the page that it's going to be quick. You're going to be, the reader's going to be yes. more inclined to, to, to just, okay, I'll, I'll just read this because it's quick. But if you're going to write something that's going to be more than a page or more than the eye can scan through on a Kindle screen, then make it so compelling that they just don't, the readers just don't care if it's a prologue. Because that they have there, there is a sort of a uh, they've given themselves a bad name, and you know, writing changes over the years. Writing styles, like mm -hmm. the whole omnipotent voice, used to be the way you told stories way back when, not through character point of view or anything. You just like that bird's eye view and telling what's going on across the world all at the same time, and this character, this, and that character, this, and we just don't do that anymore. And in this, in the same way, you know, prologues used to be. I guess that they used to be a part of storytelling. It's just something you did. And now not so much. And so they can feel a bit antiquated if they're not done right. They carry that baggage with them. So I think your data point is very valid, Steve, even if it's just one. I do remember um, Carol's, that, that newspaper story uh, that she, she referred to in the paper, like the really short newspaper story and thinking that was really clever when I read that book, um, because that piqued my interest. I wanted to read it. And then when I got to the story, I, it's just, I was anxious. I was pleased to have had that information. Um, unlike yeah. what you said, sometimes they're, they're, they can just be a little bit too lengthy. Yeah. And so I think like all of this boils back to what she said in her opening paragraph of this primer where the hardest task of the writer is not deciding what happens it's deciding what to reveal and when to reveal it 
to achieve the right tension to pull people along and give them the most satisfying experience. And that really is the heart and soul, the core element that goes into this decision of do I prologue or do I not prologue? And it is, is this, do I have information that I need to reveal up front that by revealing it here up front and outside the story, it's going to achieve the right tension and pull people along and give them the most satisfying experience. And then to point five, if you don't need it, don't write it. <laughs> Do it a different way. Reveal that information a different way. So it's all interesting. This is, these, this is advice from somebody who clearly understands story. This is an experienced storyteller giving you their insight in the decision-making process of how to lay out the decision tree of what information goes where when it comes to launching your story, starting your story. Where, where, What information do you lay down from the beginning? And that's, you're getting an inside look at somebody who really knows what they're doing in that, in that regard. Yeah, and who thinks deeply about this stuff. So yeah. it's not like she just, this, I'm confident that this was not some off the cuff, let me write this out in five minutes and send it off to Taylor thing. I, I'm, no. She's obviously <laughs> she knows, thought a lot about this, yes. Yes, especially since all of her books do have prologues, which mine don't. Two of them do, and that's it. Because at that point, I was like, oh, we don't need prologues? Okay, then we're chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you to, and I love this term, contributor at large, C.A. Newsom. Thank you, Carol, for uh, sending that in, in for us. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We will be back with you again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here, guys. See you next week. <laughs>